You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 311, TED Talk. Hello, Big Chillians, and welcome back to The Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Sam and Eddie. Boys, how's it going? How's the Olympics fever? Yeah, it's there. <laughs> yeah. Sam, how's, how's the COVID fever? <laughs> COVID fever. Yeah, it's quite good. I'm done. My isolation Sam, ended. Sam's wrapped with guilt. I know he doesn't want, he doesn't want me to bring this up, but he's wrapped with guilt. He may have he may be a spreader, not just a character. I may be. Are you yeah. a spreader or a super spreader, Sam? Super spreader. Of course I'm yeah. a super spreader. He's not he's not Vasilis. Spread, you might be super at it. Yeah, he's not Vasilis. Oh, Vasilis is super spreader. Vasilis okay. is patient zero. We've established that last <laughs> Yeah. Obviously, I'm always because we I know we'll have new listeners for every episode. I'm, I'm reluctant with us stop starting by making COVID related jokes. We're not <laughs> we're not downplaying the seriousness of the pandemic or that COVID is real. Just to put that disclaimer in before we continue with anything else. Go get But back. we're saying COVID guilt is a thing. COVID guilt is a thing. The feeling that you may have like messed up someone else's plans or something like that because of your positive test. But Eddie gave me some sound therapy and I feel absolutely fine about it. He told yeah, me to grow so up, it, basically. <laughs> no, but much. I think you I think you acknowledging the fact that that is I mean, not a, obviously a downside. There are major serious downsides of COVID. But <laughs> no, the fact that's that the only the, downside of COVID. <laughs> but the fact that you even recognize that, I feel like, is a step above many other people who still have yet to grasp this concept of, I don't care, I can survive it. But that's not the only thing. Like, it's not just affecting you. You know, there's still so many people out there that fail to understand this simple concept. It blows my mind. Holy shit, I should have gone to Frank. Like, that's positive. No, that no, no, was no. good. Hold on, that was hold on, good. Hold on, hold on, Eddie basically no, no, said, no, no, no. like, no, shut no, the no. fuck up, Sam. <laughs> hold, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on. I, we, I, I need to give full context on this. Sam felt guilty that someone who he was in contact with then subsequently tested positive. It may or may not have come from Sam, but obviously it is likely, I suppose, given the circumstances. Now... He then felt guilty about this fact because this person then won't be able to attend something he was planning on attending this weekend, which, in all seriousness, given the pandemic, probably shouldn't be attending in the first place. However, I then told Sam that, look, the guy's there's nothing serious, just tested positive, kind of got to get over it. You've just spread the virus, which is unfortunate, but it is what it is. It's not the... In this case, not the end of the world. Obviously, something more serious could have happened, in which case, if they'd actually been very sick or died, you should have felt guilty. But the fact that, Sam, what's your plan tomorrow evening? Oh, I'm going out for drinks. Right. So my point is, if you really, really feel guilty <laughs> about spreading the virus, but then as soon as you can go out, you're going out again, then you, you have to do one or the other. Wait, so do you, do you expect him to then... Re-isolate in solidarity Shield. of passing this on. 
No, but I think if someone is legitimately struggling with the idea that they might be spreading the virus, then the only sensible thing you can do is do everything you can to not spread the virus. Now, in my instance, I know I could potentially spread it. I am double jabbed, as we referred to several times on the last episode. So I'm kind of doing my part to try and reduce those risks. And I'm still wearing my mask and seeing kind of the same groups of people and things. But I'm not, if I'm, if I was really worried about spreading the virus to the people I'm seeing, then I would just stay inside. But if I'm basically saying within this group, I know there's a strong chance that one of us catches a virus sometime soon, and then it might spread, then that, that's the only way I can see them. I think you have to have one mindset or the other. You can't, you can't straddle depending on as much as you'd hey, like to straddle, Sam, okay. but Wait, as much as you'd like to straddle Sam or straddle there was Sam? A com- there was a comma there. <laughs> it's an Oxford comma. So who gives a fuck about an Oxford comma? It wasn't an Oxford comma, but yeah, it was a comma. <laughs> I, w- I, was, I was singing lyrics Vampire from a band. Does. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he's got it, he's got it. Wow, okay. But thank you, Eddie. Thank you for the therapy and the guidance and the advice. It was, it was appreciated. Look, sometimes you just got to be told, suck it up, get on with it, keep on going. And uh, speaking of that, maybe that's a good transition into uh, season two, episode one of Ted Lasso, which we have now. Oh. Sam, you how you was had... that a transition? Well, because therapy. I don't know. That wasn't very good. Oh, uh, I, oh, I therapy. Therapy is a pretty central <laughs> theme of episode one. Yeah. Guilt. Uh, so the feeling of guilt is a pretty central theme of episode one. Well, I think yeah. we should step back and first say that. Eddie and myself have been very positive on season one of Ted Lasso for a long time and insisted that Sam list watch for months. Or or even just listeners. If all he was gonna do was if all he was gonna do was listen, I would have taken it. New listeners won't know that Sam suffers from TV paralysis. And Decision paralysis. <laughs> not t- it's not just about the TV. <laughs> well, but anyway, yeah. Examples are always television watching. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's fair. But yeah, I've done it. So I watched all the episodes and uh, I am now officially caught up. I thought it was pretty good considering I hadn't done it for the last podcast. Now, so did you binge season one? Like multiple episodes yeah. a day? Yeah, I did five and then five. Wow. So, see, um, see I mean, now I think I think Ted Lasso is the wrong show to do that for, because the Jason Sudeikis, the main character, he's very unique in in the in the comedy, and I feel like watching five episodes in a row, it could almost become tiring and not as funny. Whereas if you give it a few days and then watch another episode, it it feels like genuine I... and, and fun. Whereas like after five straight hours of just crazy ridiculous metaphors about positivity might be like all right we get it it's like frank, if you watch frank, the office we gotta for, save yeah I, I need you to save what you're currently saying because okay this is going to get into my reaction to season two episode one so Ooh. keep in mind what you've just said and then okay sam overall i'm of the opinion that season one was the best show on television over that time period. I think it was my favorite show of 2020. Agreed. Sam, how did yeah. you feel? Um, I'll tell you what. First episode I watched, 
I was a bit worried for the the kind of Britishisms. It was all very like that guy on the plane taking the selfie. I I really wasn't confident about the program, but you know sometimes things start slow or you've got to kind of get into it and get involved. It's really well written. I really like it. Like I I'm a big fan of football, and I at the start struggled to get over some of the things they were doing to kind of appeal to the American market. Um, so that took some time, but it's really well written. Jason Sudeikis is really good in the role. All the supporting cast are really good. I, I kind of bought into him. Like I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I had some observations that Roy is an absolute genius. Like he, he kind of nails the, the British attitude and the thoughts and like some of the one-liners he's got are great. Um, I don't know when I watch it, I think it's high production, but the football moments feel really awfully done. Like, I, I don't know what you guys think, but there's moments with the football where it looks really bad on the pitch. Yeah. I, as, as I said to you, when we were speaking about it off, off mic, I think you have to accept for it what for what it is, which the sports is the vehicle to deliver the message and the comedy. And if you start thinking about it too much in terms of how realistic is the football or the setup within the football club, you're just it's going to ruin the show for you. So as we just the fact that there are three yeah. members of staff basically to run a Premier League <laughs> football club, stupid. But it doesn't matter. That's not the point of the show. And. You know, yeah, the, yes, you're right. The football itself doesn't look great, but then the compromise would have been: do we hire former professional footballers to do the football, but then they can't deliver a comedy line, or do we hire comedians and actors who are going to be good at ninety five percent of the show? But then when you see them kick a ball, you think, "Oh, that's not a Premier League footballer." I, I think exactly. overall it's, they did well. They yeah, did. You're very right. Well. It's 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 not a sports show that has some comedy in it. It's a comedy that is incorporating sports to drive home the message and, and make it more fun. Yeah. Ba- yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, overall, that first season to me, I, part of it obviously was the times that it came out and being at home, watching so much television, so much of television is just so dark and gloomy. And every time you watch a show at the end of the episode, you're always thinking, oh, now this guy, he's going to be bad. Oh, this guy's going to turn. Oh, he's going to do something bad. And in this show, when you first start watching it, you keep thinking like, oh, wait, now this guy, he's going to do something to screw everything up. But then yeah. the more you watch it, it's just like it's just a good hearted, genuine show. You know, it has a good message. It's funny. It's not trying to be sadistic or dark or have these crazy turns. It's just, you know, you know wholesome fun. And yeah. there's not much of that left in television. And they did it in a way that it was funny, but not corny. And I think that's also what was made it really good. Yeah, is you genuinely feel happy watching it, but not like in a corny way. It, like, yeah. I, I that, loved every episode. I, I really like after it, I would be like, "Wow, that was great!" You know, every episode in that yeah. first season. The, there was a moment around episode seven, or when they went away to Everton. There was a moment when I thought to myself, "Like, when is it going to go wrong? What's going to be the problem?" Like, because at the moment, everything is too feel good in a way. And like you say, we get so used to shows trying to have to do something bad, ultimately, or gloomy to like progress storyline. But this one was nice until literally five minutes before the very end. 
um, yeah. of season one, right? To be so, fair. so yeah, not, of season one. No yeah. spoilers for season it's, two yet. But um, it's been a while since I've watched season one. But the the one part that comes to mind for me, I thought was amazing, was when they have that sacrifice in the locker room with the fire and they all throw things in. Oh, that yeah. was just really, really funny. Like that stands out still, even though it's been four months since I've watched it. Yeah. So the, um, I agree with you. And, and actually some people I know were surprised that I liked the show. I think we spoke about this, but that they were surprised it's such a positive show. They thought I would hate it because they felt like it was the opposite of my personality, which I guess is not a compliment, but <laughs> I <can see> that. <laughs> but I, I'm fine with it because it's positivity that exists within a world of negativity. And so even though Ted Lasso himself is a fairly unrealistic character in some ways, although people like him genuinely do exist, he exists within other characters who are more grounded or realistic from the, like Roy, who's, I, I would say probably closer to my character overall in some respects. Um, but even from his coach beard, the assistant coach, a much more normal, realistic view on the world. And so it doesn't bother me that you have this one overly optimistic person because it's not just an, a total message of banal optimism. It's actually saying, no, he's trying to throw positivity at challenges and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And there's sometimes a downside to his positivity, which would be his family life. So he's lost out, right? Probably because of just being overly optimistic and positive about everything. Yeah. So there's a cost there, but there's a benefit in terms of how things go in his work. Yeah. And, and I think touching back on what Sam said too, it is extremely well-written. So I know Sudeikis and Brendan Hunt, who's Coach Beard, were co-creators. Just like the chemistry those two have, when you sit back and watch just how in tune they are with each other with their jokes, it must be so difficult. Like they're on such a good level with just the back and forth they give and the delivery. It's not easy, especially with the way those jokes are written. You know, it's not just like one liners. They kind of have to play off each other. And that, that part is another part that it kind of reminds me of like a, like a, an arrested development where the lines are definitely there in place for reasons and then they come up later you know they're not just wasted lines it's it's really well written so eddie's roy frank who are you in the cast i don't know good question i'm gonna throw my hat and say i'm ted lasso no you're not I no, I am the optimistic no, man. No, no, no. no like now, such... like now. No, no, I no. am the optimistic man in a pessimistic world. Do you know you why you always said it? Sam. All right, Sam. All right, go Sam. Ahead. Do you Sam, know you're why you're not Do you know why you're not Ted Lasso? Because Ted Lasso on, would never me... say he was Ted Lasso. Like there's too much ego. <laughs> but that's impossible then. Ted Lasso. <laughs> No, no one. All right. Okay. Someone would have to be labeled Ted Lasso, but the person who labels themselves, they're like, I want to be the guy everyone wants to be. I want to be the guy that everyone likes. That's the okay. reason why everyone likes Ted Lasso is because he's he's not wanting, he's not, he wouldn't why, pick himself. Why do you like me then, Eddie? I don't. Do you... <laughs> 
dick. I don't know why I invite that kind I mean, of that like, was, that was very bullshit. Easy, yeah. yeah, I know. I set you up. But Frank is an interesting one because I want to default to like Coach Beer, basically. But no, <laughs> that's not, it's not it. Yeah, I don't know who I would be in that show. I guess the other thing I would say is like, out of all of the kind of football things that they kind of the congrined and Rojas, annoy. Maybe. Oh. I could see myself being Danny Rojas, just someone who. No, just but you're not though. Loves uh, why? I, I, I mean, I've got a problem with play. that. I, I, I have a massive problem with that character. Mainly that they are really flying out with the stereotypes of that kind <laughs> of. Like it's really painful. But why would you be? Why would you be him? I think he just genuinely enjoys the fact that he gets to play football for a professional living and he gets a lot of joy out of it. And that's something, I mean, I play rec hockey and I look forward to playing every Tuesday because it's the highlight of my week, just getting to play hockey. <laughs> I would like to say I'm Jamie Tart, but I'm definitely not. <laughs> no. Da, 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 I mean, Sam, I mean this in Jamie the... Jamie Tart. Oh God! Here we go, <laughs> Sam. I mean, this in the nicest possible way. I'm gonna kind of agree uh, with. I'm gonna kind of agree with Frank. I think you're, um, <laughs> you're Nathan Shelley. You're the the former kit man. Oh, okay. Go on. Give me the because he give is me po- the uh, rational. He is positive, but he probably doesn't have. I think your guilt, for example, is a very is the kind of thing he would have, right? He maybe takes his responsibilities and some of his roles a bit too seriously and personally at times. And the moments when he's gone a little bit out there has been when he has reacted negatively or badly to things that are going on around him and just being a little bit too serious and too focused. I think that's you. But overall, a nice character, a funny character, and an optimistic and genuine character. But I would say that's but you. I only when heard the he, last four bits to that. So it's fine. When he gives that really negative speech about how oh. they're all being a bunch of pansies, is that Jake then infiltrating Sam in that moment? No, that's Sam snaps. <laughs> Don't say that more. sentence. Don't say that <laughs> sentence. Penetrating <laughs> when Jake penetrated Sam? Is that what it was? Oh, that's better. That's better. It wasn't obvious enough. <laughs> um, Sam snaps sometimes. I've seen Sam snap. Sam snapped at me once or twice so sam has those moments you keep pushing the buttons every once in a while you know you go you push it one too many times and and you get you get sam's fury that was also a great scene from season one that i that stands out that i still remember when ted ted lasso makes him give his speech (laughs) i'll think more about who frank is you might be more of an amalgam i think I, I, that's why I think the closest one would be Rojas, only because, like, uh, Frankie always used to say, I'm like an excited puppy. And that's kind of what he reminds me of. You are, but he's also sort of dumb, which yeah. I wouldn't say he has no ability <laughs> to hold a conversation. Now, maybe there's a language barrier there. Let's give him the benefit <laughs> of the doubt. But he's got no ability to hold a conversation. His defining characteristic is saying the same thing over and over again and being very good at the sport. And I'm not saying you're not good at sports, but I wouldn't say, how do you, how would you, how do you view Frank? And I think a guy who's really simple and basic, but actually good at sports and that's it. 
So that would well, be my issue. Don't with. think that of me. It means a lot, Eddie. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, see, everyone's taking my analysis well. But on that note, because obviously Danny Rojas plays a major part in season two, episode one. Danny, Danny maybe Rojas. we should maybe we should give our thoughts. Let's start. Another moment where you have to suspend disbelief and accept the fact that this is not a real sports show. When the mascot is just standing on the side of the pitch and runs on and gets killed and seemingly they just count that as... I mean, we've kind of seen this in real life, right? There was the Darren Bent goal against Liverpool off the... I think it was Darren Bent off the beach ball that was thrown onto the pitch and then deflected off the beach ball, which stood, but which they subsequently said it should have been a dead ball. Now, I don't know from a penalty what if you get a dead ball from the half-yard line if you killed a dog or if you retake the penalty. I would assume you'd retake the penalty. Anyway, yeah. Um, but I mean, you're right. That is, it's very unrealistic. But there is precedent for it. So, especially in college sports, where they keep—I mean, remember they used to keep the Texas Longhorn on the sidelines of the game sometimes, and that got loose once. The Bulldog for Georgia has gotten loose on multiple occasions. You know, like it—it it is very unrealistic, but it's not. But, but the, the, again, that's a very happened. American. It's a very yes. American because. Yes. It, you don't go to Premier League matches and they have live mascots. Yeah. You know, that's Actually, a very American idea. Before you get into this, Gunnosaurus? Gunnosaurus <laughs> jumps in front, takes one. Before we start Dice. season two, this was the question I had for you. Do you feel this is more of an American show set in the UK or a UK show poking at America? This is my issue the with the show. Is? This is my issue. I don't think the show really knows what it is. Because fundamentally, I think it's a British show. And that's where it's going to be the most popular overall. If it wants long-term love and success, it's going to be there. Just because of the nature of the comedy. And it, if it's going to stay, keep going, it's going to have to embrace a little bit more of the football and British culture just to keep storylines coming. However, I think they really want the U.S. success because that's obviously what makes a TV show. And so I think you see, and this is actually my concern from then seeing episode one of season two, which is part of me feels like they saw how popular and how successful season one was. And whereas over the course of season one, they did seem to ditch some of that. It's, it seemed almost as if they were learning about what a comedy about a British football club would be like if it were a British TV show. And then now in season two, episode one, I felt as if they went a little bit back towards this is what an American would think a comedy about a British football club would be like, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah so, I get it. I think... Um... The, the problem is it's very hard to land jokes on both sides of the um, equation. Like you're either going to make a British person laugh or an American person laugh. So like, uh, for example, when Roy is coaching and he calls all the little girls pricks, <laughs> like that's, that's really good. That's really funny. I found that really a good joke, but the, 
the Earl Greyhound Barkingham Palace. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I thought that was can we just agree, can we just acknowledge the fact that Sam just said when he calls all the little kids pricks that was really good? Just Sam just openly hating little children. <laughs> oh, I've I've never been a fan of children, so I that's know. that's lifestyle I choices think. prove that Sam. But oh, wow, lifestyle choices. Um, but that's my point is that that was a British tailored joke. I think that's tailored towards the British market, and then you've got this like Barkingham Palace, Earl Greyhound, the mascot, all that kind of stuff. It it didn't land with me. And I felt like going on to what he was saying. I felt it was too far. I could have just interrupted interrupt you there, Sam. Until you've just said that, I had not put together the fact that his the name of the mascot was Earl Greyhound. Yeah, it was Earl Greyhound. <laughs> no, no, no. But I've literally <laughs> only just put that together because I've never said Earl Greyhound. So, so the name, the fact that the dog was named Earl, was meaningless to me. It's only now that I've realized the origin of the name. But anyway, continue. That's pretty, to be, to be honest, that was it. Like, I, I actually thought that too much of the episode, this one, season two, episode one, wasn't grounded in any sense of reality. And it took me away from it. Like, I liked this underdog story feel to them. And I bought into it with season one. You know, bringing everyone around, having these kind of like last minute comebacks. Like it was kind of like an an emotional thing where you bought into the journey of the club. Whereas the idea of like a pigeon being around a pitch and a greyhound jumping on and it, it, it didn't it didn't land with me, if I'm completely honest. I actually think now that I've binge watched it so I, I can remember all of the episodes, I would honestly say this is the worst episode of the 11 so far. So I'm so I I think Go ahead. It it didn't bother me at all because I think it was so kind of far-fetched and unrealistic that to me it landed as a joke. I you know, because as Eddie said, there's no way that this happens and if it does even in the tiny chance the fact that like the penalty stands and things like that probably never would have happened. So for for me, it's so unrealistic. I think it's funny. To me, the bigger issue of judging this first episode, and I think it's one of the things that people are arguing about now with weekly releases versus just dumping a whole season, is you don't have the benefit now of watching the next two episodes where when you binge season one and you said like episode one didn't really land, but then you got to watch two, three, four right in a row and then thought, oh, okay, this is now good. But when you're watching week by week, you can't really do that. So maybe once you watch episode two, three, and four of season two, it doesn't feel as bad of an episode because maybe no, it's just I, setting up. I, I, I disagree. disagree. I disagree with you there. I disagree with you there. I think season two, episode one will still feel like it's it wasn't the best episode, but then you'll you might walk away being season two was good though. So. I, you know, season, no subsequent episode of this season is going to make me think that this episode was better than it was, because it's not like they developed any major storylines there, apart from the the therapist. That's the only storyline that looks like it will carry over. And also, what is Roy going to do? Those, these are the two things, you know, Roy having this moment of realization towards the end of the episode with the yoga mums as to he's that's a he's, great scene by the way he thought he was happy where he is but he's not <laughs> oh, so yeah. 
I mean, my guess is it's setting it up for him to have a heroic return to the club later in the season, and he is player going to be the or same. coach player. Bit of both, I think. Coach, maybe player coach, but I think. Ooh. I think he's, if I had to guess, I think he's coming back. I think he will be playing. But, and again, I don't want people, I enjoyed it still, and I think it's still a really good show. I'm looking forward to the rest of season two. I do like that it's a weekly release because it gives me something in my TV viewing to look forward to versus I would have watched almost all of season two by now. And it would just be out of the way. And then it would suddenly be like, when is season three coming out? Whereas now... There's going to be 10 weeks of Ted Lasso, and then hopefully that means season three is only, you know, six, seven months away. And, but yeah, I, I guess. No, I agree with you on that, though. I, I, I also like that it's a weekly release because, as I was saying to you off air, Sam binging it, he might not have enjoyed it as much because we, we talked about previously. And it was the same. So when my parents came to visit, I made them watch it. And, you know, they were like, let's watch the next one, next one, next one. And I was like, no, no, no let's just wait till tomorrow. You're here for two weeks. Why don't we just do like an episode of the, a day so you can enjoy it and then come back the next day and, you know, have something to enjoy. You know, So I like that weekly release as well. I, I think you like feel the show a little more than if you just binge it, because when you start binging things, you're not paying attention as much. You're not as invested. So I like the weekly release as well i'm not sure i think i was actually more attentive because i could watch the arcs happen sam i'm really sam i'm really sorry but i cannot accept you as if i were doing a sort of research into how people watch tv shows with all of the information we know about how you uh decide what you're going to watch hesitate over what you're going to watch finally do watch what you're going to watch I would just throw you out as a complete outlier of what a normal human human being does in terms of w- how they receive TV shows, movies, and media. What? But what are you saying? Like, what's the issue that you have at the moment with the way I take? Because media? I think in this instance, yes, you because you have the paralysis, and then basically we forced you to watch this. It took a it took nearly a well, it took eight months but we eventually forced you to watch this only because we said we have to be able to talk about it on the podcast and you can't just sit in silence. So that forced you to watch it, which then forced you to binge it. And if you hadn't been forced to binge it, I don't think you would have watched the whole, because even if you'd enjoyed season one, episode one, two, three, you probably then would have sat down and two weeks from now and said, do I want to watch season episode four? If if I, I wanna, do it, or do I want? If I watch do it this? when it's happening, if I do it when it's happening, I I commit and I watch it. It's just if I'm behind, I just kind of think to myself, I might as well wait till the season end, and, and then, then never I'll watch it. it. Are we, and then I'll do it at some point. Ted Lasso or Sam Jones's viewing It's experience. it's a good point. It's a good. I think the second one at the moment. <laughs> but anyway, can I can I throw my negativity a little bit in on season two episode one? The things okay, so you haven't been throwing. Spoiler alert you... if you haven't watched it yet. Spoiler alerts, yeah. So, my negativity. I found Ted Lasso to be less appealing in this episode. I found he became a little formulaic in Ted Lasso enters a room, says something, makes a weird cultural reference, and we move on. It felt a little bit like when uh, South Park dissected Family Guy and just 
you could never watch Family Guy the same way again because they've just deconstructed the way Family Guy puts together jokes. Not that that took any great, you know, insight to do. It was very obvious, but I feel a little bit like Ted Lasso himself might be falling into that trap of this is how it works. And every once in a while that lands, but most of the time you kind of walk away thinking we didn't really need that random cultural reference that a lot of times I don't even get, you know, like it's, it's always intentionally obscure. And so I didn't love that. I don't, it was an episode in which the footballing storyline makes no sense, which again is fine. I suspend disbelief and that takes a lot of effort on my part because normally that is something that would kill a show for me. Which is why the, people thought you wouldn't like the show. <laughs> well, no, one not of. for the sports. Yeah, probably one of them. But yes, the combination of the penalty, the combination with just the fact that every fan in the stadium seems to treat every match as if it is the World Cup final and not the seventh match of a championship season, which thrilling as it is when I consume them, I promise you I'm not throwing beers in the pub when Blackburn take the lead against Watford in, you know, the end of September. So that's because they're not showing it at the pubs you go to in Paris, Eddie. <laughs> I, I can take those matches anywhere, but you know, that's the only, that's the only too much of that seeped into this where it bothered me. Um, again, Roy can kind of be the same. He saved that episode, Roy, just overall his, uh his bits and the times he was in the show saved it. And it will be uh, interesting to see. Now, also just to discuss, a lot of stuff has happened off camera going into season two. How did you feel about that? I was, I was fine with that. I I mean, I, I kind of liked that they progressed a little, but not too much. You know, it seemed like a good amount of progression and a good spot to pick up on versus, you know, just picking up right when the season ended. Um, and I'm sure it makes it a little easier to write in that sense that things can happen that you don't have to actually have on screen happen. Um, but going back to your previous statement about Ted Lasso being a little too Ted Lasso, I, that is my major worry for this show. Because I've seen other shows, it's like when shows become aware of themselves and overplay it. So my number one is Arrested Development. The first three seasons of Arrested Development were phenomenal. They then went off air and tried to come back, but they all knew kind of like the stereotype of what their character was and just overdid it when it came back. And it was almost unwatchable because they were just overplaying their quirkiness of each character or whatever it is. Ted Lasso is such a unique character in that sense that it's a fine line to be Ted Lasso and not over be Ted Lasso. I don't think I felt it in this episode, maybe a little, but maybe only because I hadn't watched season one in so long. I don't think it was any different in season one. Almost every time he came into a room, he said something weird. So I'll wait a few more episodes until I make that judgment. I'll let it go and say, maybe I just hadn't seen it in a long time and it, you know, it, um, it was a lot. I, I might agree with one I might agree with you that yes, in season one he did. Now, maybe the reason why it bothered me more is because Ted Lasso himself was actually less of a central figure in 
this episode. So he would only appear for sort of 30 seconds. And in that 30 seconds, you got weird reference, one more line done because you had the, the love story with the owner and you had the therapist and you had Roy dealing with his retirement as the three sent the three storylines. And actually Ted Lasso was a peripheral figure basically. And the only one he was relevant to was the therapist. And even then he wasn't that relevant to it. It was just his general concern about therapy was kind of the only part he played in any of that. Now, that might be the problem I have with it, that if he has more screen time, so you get the you get the reference out of the way, but then he contributes with another 90 seconds of funny, interesting dialogue, you forget that he's starting every bit with the with the metaphor or the reference. I, I for me, one of the things that was a bit you know jarring about it was that they did a good job in the first season of kind of explaining the scenario around like the Premier League and Richmond scenario and situation, what the club is doing in the Premier League, all that stuff. And all of a sudden, we just hit a new season. We're seven games in with seven draws. That also bugged me as well, like how they kept interchanging draw and tie. And I think it was deliberate, but it was just grinding me <laughs> when they were doing it. But it was the... That's why you're not there Ted Lasso, There was Sam. no setup. That's why you're there not Ted no Lasso. There was no setup. <laughs> there was no I didn't feel like there was set up to it I think it would have been quite cool to explain the championship and what it means and the promotion and relegation and I, I think another I, victim of the, the, the kind I, of show as well is that yeah go before before you move in just to round off that point I do agree with you and I do think if I was Ameri- an American who doesn't who comes into this with no knowledge about the sport which I think would be probably a sizable chunk of the viewers you actually have no idea what's going on. I think most people will probably think they're still in the Premier League, that the idea is the same. It's not like you're suddenly going to recognize, oh, they're playing Watford. That's different. you know. So I do think I agree with you. It would have been worthwhile to have a scene at the beginning of this, which would have both bugged me to have the scene where Ted Lasso is explained how the championship works but it would have probably been necessary so that if you are a viewer who doesn't understand, because suddenly later in the season, for example, if they are on the cusp of the playoffs, you know, they're eighth with three games to play. If you don't really know what's going on, you won't understand the significance of that. Now I'm sure it will get explained over the course of the year, but it might have been worthwhile to just set that out very, very quickly at the start of the season. So I I do agree with you on that one. I now that you've mentioned playoffs, I'm certain that's the way it's going because that's a relatable word for Americans oh, it's, in sport. It's oh no, for it's, sure happening. If I had to predict, it's a playoff final, and one of these two things is happening: either Danny Rojas is scoring the penalty in injury time, or in the penalty shootout that gets them promoted, or Roy is putting in a man of the match performance and getting them promoted in the playoff final. Yeah, that's that's one of the issues. But that, actually, that kind of leads on to the other problem I'm having as well, is that every single time they show an element of football, it's it's a 100%. The, the whole thing is just euphoric, 
right? When they beat Watford and you've got the pints going up in the air in that generic scene, and then you've got them losing to Man City or scoring late to draw the game. And again, it was like there wasn't much reaction to it. And now you've got this scenario where it's like seven draws in a row. It's a penalty last minute. The crowd is going mental. Like the pub is going ballistic for the seventh game of the season in a two-all draw with a last-minute penalty. So it's starting to lose. Well, it was two-all, then three-all, wasn't it? Like the the, the game. The subsequent matches, yeah. But that's the problem is that it can't scale up. It's always at that level now. So the playoff final will be exactly the same as this seventh game of the season. Yeah, I mean, look, that's just the reality of it's not a sports show. It's not trying to show you the world of football. So they aren't going to show you five minutes of fans passively watching possession. You know, and <laughs> so, Sam, you've, you've, you've clearly not watched Friday Night Lights because... Every scene in Friday Night Lights oh, yeah. is a lights out scene. Hail Mary. And Friday Night Lights, which is another great TV show, makes even less sense. In Friday Night yes. Lights, it will be like they're up by 10, and then suddenly with 13 seconds left, they're down by 4. You've not seen anything else happen. And then they'll have first down on the halfway line, and then suddenly it's like first down from their own 15 and it's just the, the ball's moving all over the field with just to set up the most dramatic play you've ever how seen. Much, how many how many series of Friday Night Lights? Four. How oh, many? Four are they like five. half an hour long? Is that something I should hour. crack on with? Oh, you should watch Friday Night Lights, but oh. I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna bother trying to just, convince you to watch another show. So <laughs> okay, so obviously we were talking about the the kind of scaling up at the hundred percent. It's also on the training ground, right? They scream at each other for scoring a corner in a training ground. And it's like they well, celebrate. That was a nice corner. He curled it in himself. <laughs> well, actually, I, I'll disagree with you here. That's not a good corner. Because I was just about to say that. He's, it's given, a bad the, corner. he's given the signal as to the type of corner he's going to deliver, right? He's like put his hand up, whether, whatever the signal means. Maybe that was that corner. Maybe. But he's no one. He's not no tr- one is doing that. No one well, is going. I'm scoring. <laughs> like, uh, I'll disagree with you there, Sam, because Morton Gamps Patterson tried to score consistently <laughs> from corners. No, 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 I'm just saying. I don't look. We'll have people listening, and you know what people. You know what people are like. I know Morton Gamps Patterson used to try and score from corners. He did. There are people out there who do. However, he wasn't trying, and just overhitting your corner so that it floats into the back post it's not great corner danny can you just do that another 15 times in a row you're like well most of the time that just means either the keeper's getting it or it's just overhit and it's going out for a goal kick or a defender's clearing it so it's not a great corner i think given the emotional roller coaster he had been in i think the players might have run over to celebrate with him but i do when you do watch professional footballers train and score screamers, it's rare that they, they might individually do a little celebration from time to time. It is rare to see the entire team celebrate as if it was the winning goal in the world cup final. But look again, it's not a football show. That is a vehicle to deliver the rest of the show. And basically the, what I would put myself into the audience is if the show was not about football and it was instead about a coffee shop. I'm not watching it. And no one would convince me to be able to watch it. So by making this show be about something I feel like I want to watch 
you know, TV shows and movies about, suddenly they're able to deliver a type of show that I otherwise would probably have not have paid attention to. Fair enough. I. So what do you think about it? Like, obviously you've made your point, Daddy, like Frank, like what did you... Was it good? Six, give me a give me a rating out of ten, Frank. What yeah. what was season two episode one out of ten for you? Eight. Wow. Wow. That is I mean, high. You are you are you are just like the football. You are you are up there. <laughs> like yeah. that is your I mean, base se- mark. Season one, I think, was a ten out of ten. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with you. I'll agree with you. But then that means that you're saying the worst episode they've made, in my opinion, is an eight. Yeah, I mean, I still thoroughly enjoyed it. It's still the the most fun thing I've watched in a month, two months. (laughs) (laughs) Four weeks. I mean, think about it, though. (laughs) It's not a huge period of space of time. I mean, I can't think of something I've watched recently that I, I was, like, more excited and enjoyed more the euro oh okay until you said enjoyed more i would have said the euro 2020 final but that's not he's talking tv <laughs> shows i know i know i know I was, but. but look i i would have given it i give i give it a 6.5 which oh i still enjoyed oh, it negative. it's not it's not going to turn me off the show but it needs to, must do better is my kind of report card note i i give it a five and I, I guess I have the benefit of once again. Them all. Yeah, but I've got them all in a short place of time, once right? Again, so Sam, I can remember them all. Once again, this is why you're not Ted Lasso, because I don't <laughs> think Ted Lasso would give anything a five unless it was no. out of five. He'll be an eternal optimist. Nice, right? Eddie. That's a good one. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's a Ted Lasso I, joke you would have said about it, too. Yeah. <laughs> okay, maybe Eddie is Ted Lasso. Maybe, no. maybe it's like, no, no, definitely no. not. Okay, that's fine. But again, um, the success of Ted Lasso is I'm a pretty negative person. Everyone wants to be Ted Lasso. Like Ted Lasso is the best version of yourself. You think you could take to work to just be the person who sees the negativity in your colleagues and thinks, how can I bring the positive positivity out of them? Oh, this person's having a bad day. I've had bad days too. I'll do the thing that helps me get out of bad days or oh, this person isn't being nice to me. It's probably just because they don't understand me that well. I'll figure it out. I'll just try and explain myself to them. He is, he does exemplify what you would want to be, but I don't really want to be it because it would be. I, I was, this is a question I was going to ask. I think everyone would like to be, but do you think you could do it? No. Yeah. <laughs> I also don't know how well Look, it's a scripted universe, right? And everyone over time basically reacts well to his personality for the most part. I don't know in the real world how well the overly positive attitude would go down. I think I'd love it as a friend. As a colleague, I think I might want to murder him. You know, if Ted, it was Ted Lasso, everyone, <laughs> if it was, hey, Q3 has gone really badly, everyone. We've lost a lot of money. Things aren't going well. And uh, if he walked in and said, well, you know, uh, 
you know, uh, the Dukes of Hazard always used to lose a lot of money, but you know what they used to say? <laughs> and I was just, oh no, not this again. I don't need the weird reference followed up by advice we can't really do and some story about your past that has no, no, can't help us here because a completely different scenario is going to make the world a better place. But, but I'd like to be him. I'd like to be the, but again, his, his personal life, miserable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that's the end uh, way, way to put a downer on that topic no yeah. but when you really boil down he's a really depressing character actually when you really think yeah. about it he's super he's... successful he has one friend pretty much oh, he has people who like most. him but hmm no, it's no, no, no. It's 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 a completely fair point because you don't see him like baking the biscuits for our doing the nice things. When he's on his own, he's drinking. He's sad. He's you doing do something him. with his Sam, divorce. Sam, you, I don't you think do, you see him bake. You do see him bake because that's Where? how you know he bakes them because there's the it's one. In the one first episode, he gives them to yeah. her at the end of the episode. He's baking. Yeah, but you don't see him bake them. You see him put them away and say. I've you see him like take. Right. Oh come on! This is yeah. Come on! We see him like take them out of the oven. I mean, come on! Did you want? Did you want to see a scene where he's got the mixer out? He's come on! Just give me a I break would love here, to Sam. See that scene. Again, this is why you're not Ted Lasso. Brilliant. <laughs> also, they they you know for for a show that's made by Apple and they clearly try and make everything very like inclusive. They say ah, the term fruity a lot. They here say, we like, go. we're sorry for the fruity Here language. we go. Sam had that to is... come in with his agenda. Here we go. Ted Lasso wouldn't, Ted Lasso wouldn't, have, his, Ted Lasso wouldn't have an agenda. This I'm is... saying it now. Fruity is a bad word to use, and they're using it because they think it's British. They don't understand the meaning behind the slang, and it's bad. Saying fruity is derogatory. Oh. And it's kind of interesting that they, they left it in. I, I don't want to go down the line of debating yeah, before, fair before use of Eddie, fruity because we Eddie I will go for another 40 minutes with this on you. No, no, no. I won't regret I, I just it, think. I find it interesting that episode one tackled sports psychology, which is a very current topic in today's climate. And perhaps we is, can use that as a segue. I was going to say, is that a transition? He regrets. <laughs> No, no, I wouldn't have regretted it. And I'll probably, I'm more likely to regret something I'm about to say about Simone Biles. So you've moved me from what one land, you've moved me from one landmine to another, Frank. Eddie's I, walking around the outside of Sarajevo here at the moment. It's a complete minefield yeah, where he is. I'm doing my Princess Diana impression. And look. Well, you are in Paris. So True. for those who are completely unaware and haven't, watched any news or any I mean Olympics you're living coverage. under a rock but yeah yeah Simone Biles um started to compete in the team all-around competition and dropped out after her first event citing mental health issues um it was later kind of revealed that she had what's called in the gymnastics lingo as the twisties which is kind of not knowing where you are in space when you're performing yeah. it's it, aerial moves. a little like the yips the yips of gymnastics yeah. to me it reminds oh we're going me back to ted lasso now <laughs> yeah. yeah the yips nice 
it was uh, again another Arrested Development quote when uh, Lucille Ostero has has a case of the dizzies. That's kind of what it kept reminding me of. She has vertigo, <laughs> but um, she then subsequently dropped out of the individual all around. And I don't know yet about the actual individual events. I think those are still to be determined. Yes, yeah, they're taking the Olympics a, or they're taking they're it day taking by it day, day by day, supposedly. Okay. She so is would you like her... to go first, Eddie, or would you like one I'll of go us first. to start off with our opinions? I'll, I'll go first. Okay. Look, I'm going to the distinction between because obviously there's a lot of parallels between her and Osaka. Uh, the the major distinction I think is kind of what you're referring to with the twisties. What Simone Biles does is exceptionally dangerous. She could kill herself in an event. So if she is in a position where she's not confident going into it or she is losing spatial awareness over the course of a, a jump, that is very different to Osaka not trusting her backhand. So already to me, I think someone being more cautious with if they're in the right headspace to do what they're going to do makes a lot more sense. Now, where I struggle a little bit with this is I... I'm fine with an athlete making that decision. I'm a little bit, I don't really like the overall public reaction of people applauding her and saying that she's setting some incredible example that other people can follow so that they aren't work martyrs who sacrifice their mental well-being in exchange for trying to hit goals or targets at work. And the difference there being I can't, for example, be about to give a huge presentation at work. Couldn't be end of the quarter. Here's a huge, massive, this determines ex whether or not the company is going to go really well or not. And I can't say, sorry, everyone. I'm not feeling up to this. Woke up this morning, very stressed, just can't give the presentation. I wouldn't just get a bunch of people patting me on the back and saying, Good for you for valuing your own mental health more than the, the future of this company. Now, so I think athletes, the decisions they are making for their mental health, it, you can't apply those same that same thought process to people in the, I'm going to say normal world, but people who aren't playing a kid's game for a living. And... Also, they all have the luxury of having, in these instances, been tremendously successful already, made a ton of money already, and know that they will continue to make money in the future. So the decision is made from a position of strength. Sports come with a tremendous amount of pressure. A lot of what separates the number one athlete in the world and the hundredth best athlete in the world isn't next necessarily their raw physical ability or their talent in the sport. It is how they handle the pressure, how their mind works under, under the bright lights. Yeah. So I think you read some of the notes here on my cheat sheet because I also had Tom Brady written down. Um, but <laughs> I just think for... you scribble down Tom Brady seven times a day. So <laughs> It's actually I have like that notebook you had when you're in elementary school and girls just write someone's name on it a hundred times with I will marry so-and-so that's what I got says Tom Brady on it but starting with the 
Simone Biles specifically, I 100% agree with you. I have, I actually applaud her for the awareness to pull herself out of a, out of that team competition when she realized she didn't have it. I don't understand the people who are criticizing her for ditching her teammates or or letting her team down. If anything, she brought her team up because she knew in that day she didn't have it and her scores were going to hurt her team. And instead of hurting her team and trying to be the one, she realized it and made the conscious decision to not be a part of that team. I mean, we've all played on team sports and there's some times where a guy is just so bad or girls is performing so bad that you kind of just wish like, listen, just sit this one out. You're killing us right now, you know, but for pride or whatever, they don't. And they end up costing you. I think that was great that she did that. I have no issue with that. And I have no issue with her realizing that she's just not in the right headspace and doesn't want to do it, even if it is the Olympics and she's there to represent her country. Gymnastics is a very specific example because exactly like you said, you could literally die out there if you don't have it. I think this is very different from the Osaka issue because Naomi Osaka's concern was she didn't feel comfortable talking in front of the media when she had a bad day, things like that. She didn't like that media pressure. That is something that comes with the sport that I honestly, I think people have to realize is going to happen. This is very different. This is like risking your life when you know, when you don't feel right. My two concerns are not so much Simone Biles specific, but exactly what you're saying is for decades and decades, this is a part of what makes certain athletes great. Why is Michael Jordan the greatest of all time? Because he could perform under the pressure of championship after championship. He has the flu. Well, he plays even better because that's just the type of player he is. He has the mental toughness to play in those situations. Tom Brady. Is Tom Brady the best physically gifted quarterback? No. Mahomes is a thousand times better if you just look at, you know, like raw on the field attributes. Does he have the strongest arm? No, he doesn't. But what makes Tom Brady the greatest of all time? You put him in a Super Bowl and what, six, seven times out of nine? out of 10, he's going to win and he's going to do everything and outperform himself to win. Sports has, you know, that's a component of sports. You have to be physically and mentally in the right space. You know, like I, I, I just struggle with exactly what you're saying is are there people out there that now could say, yeah, I, I'm the greatest quarterback, but I can't do it when it counts. You know, like I was a division one athlete in an individual sport and I'll be the first to say I was terrible when it came to like tough competitions. When we had our championships, like our big 10, I always threw terrible. My last throw ever in big 10 championships, I put into the fence, you know, like threw it into the, like, that's my last <laughs> lasting memory of my throwing career is needing one good throw when I was throwing 40 feet further in practice. And then when it counted in the big 10 championships, my last throw, I put into the net, you know, like my best throws were in little tiny meets. I was bad at it. That, and I accepted that. That's what, that's why I was never a great athlete because I couldn't handle that mental side of it. You know, the other issue that kind of bothers me is a little bit of semantics, but saying she's focusing on mental health issues. To me, 
mental toughness in sports is that's a fine line to walk and calling it a mental health issue when you have other people who in sports who are suffering from depression, schizophrenia, addiction. Those are serious mental health issues that there are athletes overcoming. That's a little different than handling the pressure of being the closer in uh, the ninth inning of the World Series. You know, the, I, I mean, maybe that's just me being a scientist and arguing terminology, but I don't consider that a mental health issue. I, I consider that kind of just emotional maturity and, and mental awareness and, and mental maturity versus a severe issue like depression, schizophrenia, uh, anxiety, you, you know, like some of the addictions that athletes have to uh, like kind of get through and things like that. So th- those were my issues with it, I think. But I have no gripe with her with her not wanting to do the competition. I, I think the people who are criticizing her are insane. Um, I I think it, it's a little bit. You've got to be a little bit careful sometimes as well when you talk about mental toughness and mental health because quite frankly it's something that you deal with on your own usually so you have no concept of whether it's something you're suffering with or whether this is just normal life right you you have no idea but also you don't know until maybe something happens like for example Simone Biles was part of the she's part of the gymnastics team that had Larry Nassar the the sex scandal guy she went through traumatic events and understanding what happened with this guy during that time hold so on hold you on don't... sam 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 i'm sorry like to a certain extent here out of respect for someone's mental health too i think we have to take her at her word that what she is then saying is what she's suffering from is what she's if we start assuming that there might be more significant trauma playing a part in what's now happening then either that's a private matter, it's not for us to discuss, or she then has to be willing to speak about it publicly. And then no, can... no, 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 no. Like, I, I get it. I get what you're saying. Look, I'm not making any assumptions about her, but I'm building to a wider point, which is that the behind the scenes that causes someone to have to do it so, unfortunately, publicly, that Simone had to do, that Osaka had to do, is the issue for me, is that this is something that's woefully not known, like, no one really understands it. No one understands what it means for these people to be like thrust into the limelight for so long, to have all of the global pressures, new pressures that are handling with social media, with jet setting around the globe. No one truly understands what is happening with it. And therefore, sports and federations and associations, they're all playing this game of catch up with it because they're having to build these structures and have these things in place. What do you mean? No one understands. Well, we're only just scratching the surface of mental health. It's not like we've cracked it. No, no one mental health issue is the same as the next. There's not like depression. Therefore you tackle it this way. Like it's no, I don't think any sport has cracked how to handle mental health issues with athletes or sportsmen, sportswomen, whomever. No, no one, no sports being cracked at. But I and think therefore, what... you don't know what these people go through in the backgrounds and behind the scenes. So I think it's crazy that then people judge it on the basis of just being like, oh, she had a bad day and therefore she claimed mental health. 
like, well, no, you don't know the background. You don't know what she's been through to be in that scenario. In that no, but okay, right but we can also use mental health as a get out of jail free card, which is you're almost implying that I could always just say, "Can I do that, Sam? Can I go to work and have I, I can not not complete a project, or I can not get the results that were expected of me, and I go for a quarterly assessment, and I'm at forty percent of what I was supposed to do in a quarter, and I'm would my boss just have to accept if I said, look? Now, maybe every once, maybe you can have a conversation with your boss every once in a while and say, "Look, I'm struggling with some things, so my work performance might be impacted by some things that are going on outside of my work and in my personal life." And I think if you a boss should un, be understanding with that, but if you are going to use it after the fact, as a as if here's my trump card, you can't question it. You, you're not allowed to really look into this because if I say, and this is what worries me, is that it actually is a little bit like what Frank mentioned. It is actually disrespectful to people who may be struggling with real mental health issues to play the mental health card in an instance where it is, look, my job is high pressure. And in this moment, I didn't handle that pressure. You don't know sometimes that there is an underlying mental health issue until something happens like a trigger or something like that. But so Sam, she's not saying that. So, so no, I don't I'm know. just talking wider. This isn't just about bios. This is wider mental health that I'm talking about. Yeah. So, so, so the first part with, I mean, because I, I agree, we're getting past it. the Simone Biles is a very unique case for several things. One, just being a gymnastic in general, but two, she does have probably decades worth of very serious issues with everything that you're describing, and 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 that's completely right. And and I'm not at all going for the small bios. I'm just going in general. I think I, I am agreeing with what Eddie was saying is I, I think there's a difference between people having mental health issues that limits their performance versus developing your mental awareness and your mental aspect as a trait, just like you would develop your physical traits for a sport to be able to handle a pressure situation. So for instance, I, I, again, like I competed and I wasn't good in high pressure situations. I don't now think that I had a mental health issue. I think I failed in being able to train myself to be better mentally and focusing solely on training myself in a physical sense in terms of, you know, building strength, building my technique and failing to ignore the fact that I need to learn and teach myself how to succeed in a high pressure situation. So I think that is not a mental health issue. I just think that's a different aspect that is associated with your brain. So you call it mental, but it's not, it's not like depression and anxiety and things like that, that are, that are defined diseases. My other issue is look at someone like Andy Dalton versus Tom Brady. Andy Dalton was terribly unclutch in playoff games. If you ask him, would he tell you he has a mental health issue? I, I don't think so. I think, he, you know, he would just say, maybe I wasn't great at performing when it counted, you know, like, and I think then it becomes a very tricky line where if he comes out and says, I could be Tom Brady, but I have a mental health issue. And that's kind of what Eddie's getting at is, is that fair to people who have actual mental health issues? And I mean, there's a great story about a hockey player who went through years or decades actually of depression 
and alcohol addiction and trying to survive playing hockey. Is that fair to put his actual mental health issue on someone who just never trained the pressure side of being in a sport? Do you think people are lying? Like, do you think Biles or Osaka are lying? Or what's no, the... no, I don't at all think she's lying. But you're, you're worried think... about people using it. Like, what, rather than thinking they have it or they have a mental no, no. health issue. Here, here's the opposite, actually. I'm, I think the difference, I'm taking Simone Biles 100% at her word, which is she's saying that she can't handle at this moment in time, she can't handle the pressure of the moment. Now, yeah. I think where Frank and I agree is that's not a mental health issue. That is... You are at the moment not in the right mental space to deal with the pressure of your job. That's not mental health. That is preparation for doing your job. That is whether or not you feel she's 24 years old. By uh, gymnast standards, she is older than Tom Brady is in the NFL. So let's not also forget there's an element here where she might be feeling, I'm slipping a bit here. I'm not the Simone Biles who could have turned up and done this in my sleep five years ago. I'm now ancient and there are young pretenders here who might be able to beat me. And this is the first time in my life I've been on the big, big stage and not felt like my B is better than everyone else's A plus. And again, I'm not going to put that on her, but she's coming out and saying she can't handle the pressure of this moment. I'm taking her at her word. I also give her a tremendous amount of credit for speaking openly about it in the press conference and for then also turning up and supporting her teammates. I also agree with Frank that in a team situation saying, I'm not the best person for this job right now, even though I am the only person most of the world knows when it comes to gymnastics, that takes, uh, your ego is in a good spot to be able to do that because it would have been a lot easier to fail and then come with the excuse and people would have still been sympathetic afterwards. So, but look, if we're going to get to the point where the pressure of performing is now a mental health issue, scrap winners and losers in sports. Because we all know that part of what makes an athlete good is, it's like when you had the discussion, if your life was on the line, who do you want to take a putt for you? If, you know, this and that. And all that boils down to, who is the person when the when everything's on the line, you know, can clear their head and just pretend this is like every other putt I've ever had. And that's what separates. Look, the PGA Tour, what's the difference in, in talent levels between the top 100 players? Not a lot. But Tiger Woods, you knew he wins 22% of the tournaments he enters because mentally he's beating all of those guys all the time. He knows he gets over the most difficult putt he's faced, the most important putt he's faced, and he's thinking, I cannot wait to make this. This is going to be awesome. Whereas someone else is getting over it and thinking, oh my God, I'm going to miss this. I'm going to blow this tournament. I can't believe I'm going to blow it. And it's a choke job. It's yips. It's whatever. It happens. It's sad. I'm sympathetic when someone loses it, but I'm not going to allow, I'm not going to be in a situation where we suddenly start thinking that the mental side of sports isn't a big part of what makes you good at them. I don't, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not trying to downplay anyone coming out and saying that they're not in the right headspace. They're they're having, you know, problems mentally competing, things like that. I, I also applaud that. I think that's great that people are coming out and making other people more aware because like Eddie said, in the real world, maybe you can't make that you can't not make that presentation, 
But if you see that there's these people that you idolize and you know you respect the hell out of that are coming out and saying like, hey, I'm having trouble, you know, staying in the right mindset, performing under the pressure, then at least maybe you feel it makes you feel them be more human where you're like, oh, okay, you know, Simone, Simone Biles is the greatest gymnast of all time and she gets nervous too. Okay, maybe it's okay for me to be nervous in a presentation. You, you know, I, I do really applaud that they're coming out and saying it. My only concern is I don't consider that a, a disease in the sense that there are other mental health issues that people really have to overcome and get medication and significant amount of treatment for and still perform their daily lives. I just think this is an aspect of a high intensity career. And what then bothers me is you have people on ESPN that are applauding her for doing that and saying there's more to the sport than performing under the pressure. The next article on ESPN today that I read was about the person who then won the individual, the American, um, Suni Lee. And in the article, it literally says, Lee's ability to stay focused under the pressure, even when the world around her feels out of control, when a routine isn't going as perfectly as planned, is what earned her the gold on Thursday. So in two articles before, they're applauding her and uh, Simone Biles and saying that there's more in the world of sports than you know having to deal under the pressure and we need to get rid of all this pressure we put on athletes. And then the next article is applauding the athlete that replaced her in the gold medal for how good she was under pressure. You know, so like you can't go both ways on things like that. And, well, and you never will with sports because I think that is part of being a great athlete is performing under pressure. Well, there's, you know, everything you've said is exactly fine, but there's also the idea of someone being open about it and someone suppressing it or repressing it and having issues with it. So Tiger Woods is a good example, right? He had a really bad relationship with his father that was very open. Oh. He got, he went into a sex addiction clinic. He had a drug system. He had oh. drug abuse. Oh, right. what, 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 so, so wait, all of these things you're saying don't matter. No, of course those relevant matter. No, to I'm it. saying that. I'm saying that absolutely matters. I, I agree with you in that. <laughs> that way, matters way more than whether or not Tiger Woods can sink a putt on the 18th of Augusta. But, yeah, but that's my point. Is that like we're talking all of these things were going on behind the scenes? Oh. But you were saying that he can deal with it, deal with the pressure and things like that. Can he? Was he just repressing it? And and this is what happens when people do that. So you're, there are plenty of athletes who will be dealing with legitimate mental health issues. No one's denying that. Some of those athletes will continue to be successful. Some of those athletes will have their careers derailed by their mental health issues, often as is the case with people dealing with serious depression or addiction problems, 100%. However, there is what Frank and I are saying. There is a separation between that and just handling the pressure of the moment of competing. Now, there might be moments where that overlaps, as in you're dealing with depression or serious anxiety, and so then that impacts your performance and your ability to handle the pressure in that moment, for sure. But you don't then get to say, I cracked under the pressure of throwing, you know, closing out the Game 7 of the World Series. The pressure got to me. I guess I must be depressed. This is great in the sense that it, it causes people to have a dialogue. And similar to what Frank says, if you're a, particularly, I think, for children, then yeah, you are opening up this idea that mental health is a real thing to think about and that it can impact anyone. 
Whereas I grew up with, you know, Michael Jordan being the person I looked up to. Michael Jordan seemed infallible. I, I'm just cautious about one, a good example that opens up the dialogue and kind of normalizes the idea that people need to think about their mental health to then saying, hey, if you can't handle the pressure of a moment, that becomes a mental health issue in the same way that someone who can't get out of bed in the morning because they're depressed or because or who has serious panic attacks where they can't function or moments of anxiety where they literally cannot deal with the world. It seems a little bit to me that you run the risk of downplaying the seriousness of mental health because if you are a skeptic, which I'm not, I would look at it and say, oh, so it's only a mental health problem when you're losing? It's only a mental health problem when something goes wrong. It's only mental health becomes an excuse. It doesn't look legitimate. That would be my fear of when we start to use a catch-all term of mental health for the difference of like the yips. Yeah, and and I also agree. So what I said before, and I really like the fact that athletes are coming out and saying that you know they're having these issues to let other normal in quotation mark people understand that even the greatest in the world, you know, have trouble performing under pressure, doing day-to-day tasks, things like that. I think it really does, especially like Eddie said, with, with kids being able to see that and, and have them kind of get a better grasp of their mental awareness. I think it will also push forward the idea that like having personal trainers that work on your form for a specific event, work on your strength for a specific event, you'll have more people that will be more open about saying, I also have a mental coach. I have someone who trains me mentally and kind of gets me in the right mindset for meets. And um, we had Frank Molinaro on, and he was a great example. I mean, when he started to become an elite athlete, he would seek out some of these things and he started to develop ways that would put him in the right spot mentally. Like he had a really unique uh, pre-match ritual that he would always do and it would kind of put him in a very similar headspace every match no matter if it was his first match or the finals in the Olympic trials things like that it always would put him in that same mindset and you know he puts a lot of credit into things like that and with athletes opening up like this maybe there are more opportunities for that to be the norm and not people to be nervous to say I need someone to help me handle the pressure better, you know, or things like that. So I think that's another great aspect of this. Yeah, I, I agree. To me, that's the big distinction. If we're talking about issues where you're going to a sports psychologist to have it dealt with, not a mental health issue. If you're going to a real therapist or psychologist to deal with something else, that is a mental health issue. But if, if it's Owen Farrell, going to a sports psychologist to help his pre-kick routine and visual positive visualization and picturing the the ball flying through the post that isn't because he's having a mental health issue before every kick that's because he's he's gone to someone who's helping to put his mind in the right place to perform under pressure that to me is the difference and he could still have a moment where he forgets how to kick but I'm not going to then say He's having a mental health issue. Yeah, I, I, I don't have a problem with that. I, I, I think, uh, like Frank's point, obviously, is a good one about 
when people open up, it normalizes something, right? And it means that they can tackle it early. Maybe they can understand it early. Maybe they can see signs that they wouldn't have. Uh, but it also means that more people may have the ability to see more signs as well. So I, I just think having more discussion about it makes it more in the open, which means it could be, for lack of a better way, caught earlier if it is something rather than repressed or, you know, um, something damaging fundamentally. Um, and I think the more it happens, the better it will be. But I understand the caution. Like the way the way you've just described it then is is fine and fair. Like I get that. Maybe transitioning to more positive Olympic stories. Anything exciting that you've watched in the past few days that you want to share? For me, I thought I watched yesterday the 4 by 200 freestyle relay for the women. And I know this is being very USA-centric, but USA was a clear underdog in that. Um, and Katie Ledecky was the anchor and went into the pool, I think, like two seconds behind the person winning and ended up getting second place by under a tenth of a second. I mean, it was one of the craziest come, you know, come from behind swims or runs in any type of relay I've, I've seen. She, her time was almost two seconds better than what she ran individually in the 200-meter freestyle that she didn't meddle in. It was, it was pretty impressive. You, you could tell she really wanted to do something for her teammates and her country. And that was pretty awesome. Even though she didn't catch her still getting the silver. It was, it was cool to watch. Yeah. I love relays. I think relays make everything more exciting. Just the fact that you have multiple people and you have, it gives you more of hope that someone is going to close a gap versus, okay, we're 300 meters into this 400 meter race and they're way out in front, and there's no reason to think that suddenly there's going to be a sixth gear. So I always think that it adds to the excitement that you suddenly have each time a new element entering the competition. Yeah, and, and not to dwell on what we just talked about, but it's, you know, like you have an anchor who you know is a gamer and is going to outperform, you know, and, and just wants to win, like Katie Ledecky did. It's to just be at that elite level, and swim almost two seconds faster than you did in your individual event is like, that's like unheard of, you know, and to be able to do that is just so cool to watch in relays. I must admit, I've been watching Ted Lasso, so I haven't seen too much of the Olympics, but uh, it's been cool with the rowing. Like the rowing has been good. It's, it's oh, been a bit kind of mixed. It's been oh, a bit like... rowing. Well, the rowing apart from the men's four where the British men's four <laughs> tried to like, jackknife everyone basically yeah ramabo in a race that they would have won and yeah, obviously that's straight lines it's a, of shame it's an event that britain has dominated since the year 2000 so it's disappointing from that sense because it was five straight gold medals in that particular event unusual at elite rowing levels to see someone basically lose control of the boat that's for sure i know that there were crosswinds so it's not the easiest steering job, but still, I've never seen a, a top quality four have a moment where it seems like they can actually steer the boat. I mean, it, it boils down to one person, obviously, but uh, and that's going to be tough. Speaking of handling pressure and the and the the repercussions of failure, 
that has to be a difficult one because you really have to feel as if you were solely responsible for the failure of three other people. And then a lot of work goes into rowing. You know, a lot of work goes into being any Olympian, but particular, particularly rowing is a pretty grueling preparation. Yeah. And that's going to be a difficult one to swallow. Yeah, and the thing with rowing, right, is it is all about the Olympics in a way. Like, that is the pinnacle of that sport. Like, that is the moment that you train for. Like, obviously, they've got the Worlds and they they get, they have their own uh, editions of annual tournaments, etc. But it is all about the Olympics. And, yeah, a lot of it is team-based and kind of it must be really, really tough to have that moment where you're like, I pulled too hard or something like that like it, it must be pretty difficult but um it's cool to watch i find it quite exhilarating it's just crazy to watch them kind of bob uh when you watch them like kind of against each other and it's crazy just to see him like pull away and things like that but overall i've actually found this olympics quite tough to get into i i, I don't know why like maybe because it, it just feels very disrupted in terms of like crowds and um would should it have happened should it have been delayed I've, I've just found it a little bit harder to get into but the things i've caught and the things i've watched have been cool there's some cool stories about it like you know ireland winning a rowing gold san marino winning their first ever medal uh all the stories about kind of refugees from syria who then represent other countries you had the mongolian defector from iran uh the kind of jewish person so you had there's cool stories with the olympics and it's always interesting to kind of read up on people's backgrounds and you know, how the, where they are, where they are and things like that. So that's been a cool part of it, but I haven't really tracked specific sports. I think part of the challenge a little bit is the, is the timing. So the fact that a lot of the stuff for us happens in the middle of the night. So you're just waking up to new stories of, oh, this person won the 50 meter freestyle or this happened or that happened. And then you're catching up. We discussed it before, right? I'm, I'm a very much, it either happened live or it didn't happen for me. And so there is an element with some of this Olympics where it just feels like I'm completely missing it in a way that I didn't, well, I haven't since, I don't think ever really, because obviously there's been a lot in the Western Hemisphere. And then even when it was in Sydney in 2000, the time zone lines up just a little bit better where it was sort of early morning, but you were still catching it. So you could wake up at, you know, seven or eight and you're seeing those things versus this is legitimately three or four in the morning for me so yeah. i'm either japan's... staying up late or waking up early and it's it's not ideal even because with japan like the rugby world cup they even timed it to be close enough you know for the europeans to kind of watch it but one thing i found interesting about this olympics is there's always these big discrepancies between some of the sports like you look at the football right they play, was it five or six matches to get to like the potential for winning a medal? And then you go into something like with the trap shooting where they turn up and within about an hour, the gold medal is decided. So there's always sometimes these weird things of like some have massive amounts of qualification, some have full on tournaments and some people just rock up and have like a one off moment and they win gold and they just walk away just like done. In, in a way, it's kind of like the 100 meters, right? But that's got qualifying. But there's some yeah, events where you just turn days. up. Yeah, where you just turn up and you're like, oh, there we go. Cool. Well, I even felt like the rugby sevens, I didn't even really know they were happening. And then just saw, well, Fiji have won the gold medal. It was like, wait, when did... Yeah, I saw, I saw one all... match. I saw half of one match. When did... 
I saw the USA. I, yeah, I saw like the USA comeback, but it was because they were tracking the British rather than oh, it's happening. And then all of a sudden, I wake up to like Britain lost gold uh, bronze medal match against Argentina. It's like oh, they drew Argentina and then played them already. Like it, you're right, it does just some things just happen. Like there'll be this moment where you're watching football, hours, hours and hours of football, men's football, women's football, whichever. All the while, there's been three events in the middle of the park that have all had gold medals within a half an hour of starting. Yeah, for me, the so far, the swimming, which has been, I think, the most exciting thing that's been on so far. I mean, once the track and field comes on, that will be something I'll watch a lot more. But the swimming, the, the medal races have all been between 5 p.m. and 9 p.m. my time. So it's almost perfect timing for that. But then everything else after that, because that's at the very morning, I believe. Right? Yeah, that would make sense because it's 15. So it'll be like right in the morning. So everything after that, I kind of miss. Like all yeah. the gymnastics, I missed everything. I would just wake up every day to so-and-so one, you know, the individuals or whatever. But the, the other thing I saw, did, I thought you guys would be impressed in. Did you see when Great Britain, their men's swim team won the four by two? freestyle relay it was the mm. first time they've won gold since the first time it was ever raced in 1908 in london <laughs> wow that's yeah, yeah we don't britain's that's pretty crazy not has not got a great history with swimming i mean as we talked you know this is the first year that anyone's ever successfully defended their olympic title mm -hmm. so it's not as if um you know golds in the pool are are hard to come by for britain I, I guess we can't really talk about the Olympics, though, without throwing a little bit more negativity into the podcast uh -oh. and the fact that uh, Japan is expanding and extending right its state of emergency uh, in the face of rising COVID cases. They hit 10,000 in a day for the first time ever. So whilst the Olympics is going on and overall people are really saying how great this Olympics is and what a shame it is that it's taking place behind closed doors and that all the venues are amazing and even the Olympic Village itself is great. Except the Russians. Uh, Have you seen yeah. that? Have you seen no. that? <laughs> so all of the, apparently all of the Russian athletes have said this is the most like disgusting Olympic venue and the um, the Olympic Center is terrible and the accommodations are the worst ever. They've just been openly trashing these Olympics. It's so funny because it, it's in the face of everyone else. Basically, like you said, being like, this is actually really nice, really cool. All oh, these cardboard beds are actually really awesome. But the Russians were just destroying these cardboard beds. It's, prob it's probably because there's not many them, places like, for them to drug them. up. <laughs> it's really funny. I don't get that Russia thing, by the way. I don't think it's a penalty to them. They turn up, they get a gold medal. It, it's more a penalty to Russia than it is the athletes themselves. But I guess that's the point, right? But they don't want to. Yeah, it's not supposed to be penalizing athletes. That's the that's the decision they had to come to. Is you're you're penalizing Russia. You're not trying to penalize individual athletes who have done nothing wrong themselves. It would be a, it would be harsh to deny someone in particular in sports in which the Olympics are the pinnacle of their sports to deny them the ability to compete because someone else who is the same nationality as you or another sport um, has run 
a planned, you know, doping uh, program, it would be difficult to, if I were, you know, a Russian, if I were Medvedev, for example, I probably wouldn't go to the Olympics anyway, because I don't think tennis gold medals mean much. But if I did want to compete and I've never doped, it would bother me to think I can't do this because a bunch of Russian weightlifters were in a doping program. And this has nothing to do whatsoever with anything I've done to train or prepare for my professional career. Maybe it should incentivize whistleblowing then, you know, if you ban them. <laughs> so you make sure that your association or federation is above but board. In a sense, but then again, if you, don't know, if you don't know, if you don't know, you don't know, right? I think this encourages whistleblowing because this is saying you could call out your own federation. You could call out fellow, uh, you know, other people from your country without risking your own ability to compete. So if you are a Russian weightlifter who's clean, you can come forward and say every other Russian weightlifter is doping. Whereas if you said, well, now Russians can't go to the Olympics, then I would say I'm not whistleblowing because why am I going to cost myself my only shot at going to the Olympics because this guy is cheating? So I think it does. But yeah, it, it's a weird one, right? I, I, I do feel torn about whether or not in the future the memory of all of these major sporting events that have taken place this summer will be how on earth were these events held in the midst of a pandemic. It does feel a little bit weird that history may not judge these decisions that well. Um, but who speaking, knows? Speaking of events that have started... Um, we obviously had a new format of uh, cricket come into this with the hundreds starting, was it 10 days ago or something like that? I can't remember, but two weeks, uh, one eight, week. Eight days ago. Eight days. I, uh, yeah. And, um, uh, you know, it was meant to start last year. Obviously, they postponed it because of the pandemic. Well, it's not like we're out of one yet, but, you know, they, they decided to have it now. Um, they marketed it heavily. It seems to have been a success in terms of, like, viewership and people watching it but what have you thought of it like in action now we've seen it rather than just reading rules like do you like the atmosphere do you think it kind of just like throws out norms of cricket in a bad way i think it's been less exciting than people probably would have expected that you would have thought that this is going to be even higher scoring than the t20 in actual fact it's been lower scoring not just because there's not as many balls but actually there's the power play with the initial 25 uh, ball of the initial 25 balls. After that, you only have to have four players inside the ring. And on a lot of grounds, that makes it quite hard to score. That's 75% of the match in which you're either hitting singles or sixes, basically. And it's a lot of singles. <laughs> and so from a run rate perspective, it's not been thrilling. I don't think the quality has been amazing. There's not a lot of star power within the teams. And some of that star power is now going to be even worse because the England players who are involved in the test match squad are now going to join the England test squad. So for example, Johnny Bairstow is no longer, who's one of the most exciting T20 players or white ball players is now gone. Um, I, I don't, I don't like the graphics that they're using. I find it hard at times to understand. What, what does that mean? Well, so normally you would have the score 
you know, like in the top right corner or on the bottom of the screen, you've got, you know, uh, London are 125 for one after X amount of time. Then you've got the two players with their scores and then the bowling f- figures are, are coming up and things. In this, you have on the left-hand side in a, there are two sort of upward columns. It's on horrible. One side, one side, you've got the, the, the number of runs scored and then the number of balls faced. And then on the other side, you have the number of balls remaining and then the number of wickets that have fallen. And then you have the players, the, the batting figures and the, the batsmen's figures or, or bat, batters' figures and then the bowlers' figures at the bottom. It's just sometimes, and I'm saying this as someone who you know played cricket, who watches a ton of cricket, there are moments when I'm watching the game where I have to think I, for quite a length, for 15, 20 seconds, to then figure out in a game I've been watching, wait, what's what's this what's going on here? How many runs do they have and how many balls are remaining and, and what's going on? So I think it's been good. I don't hate it. I don't think it should be stopped, but I do I do think that it's not amazing. But the first year of the IPL wasn't amazing. It's gonna take them five to ten years to figure out the proper tactics of a hundred ball cricket of managing owen morgan today in today's match was the first captain to have five bowlers just bowl 10 balls in a row <laughs> he just which up until now most of them were opting for bowl five balls another change of bowler he just hey it's going well just keep bowling let's just do 10 balls so i think it's going to be interesting to see how the tactics evolve over time but right now it feels a bit amateurish yeah i i i get that point as well like it it's all well and good having the glitz and glamour and the marketing and all of the like you say the graphics even if they're poor but it needs to attract the people that make it exciting in the first place you know the big hitters the attractive like odi t20 players that actually go after the ball rather than like you say singles like you it's a mismatch with cricket if you're it's it's like trying to make a test match sexy right it's just not going to happen because that's not the aim of a test match whereas the idea of this is to be like a sexy exciting form of cricket but then you can't have people where it's like i'm just going to run singles please don't say sexy please don't say sexy again (laughs) but it's 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 just the point that you've got to have exciting people if you want the cricket to be exciting so is if Joe you've then got people Ru- like the in it? uh no i don't think he is oh that's uh, not sexy no i but think you know, joe root did play but he's now in the test squad so I can't remember again every england for. test player is is gone mm. so and when you then figure that it's basically just english players south africans and then uh, kind of some random Afghans and and Bangladeshis, <laughs> I think, basically. Don't mean that. It's not the respect, but and but you are lacking a little bit of star power. It does feel a little bit like when I watch the Caribbean Premier League, and you watch a match, and it's sort of a watered down version of the T ten twenty cricket you get when you watch the IPL or the Big Bash, and obviously this is England's attempt at really cop of rival rivaling the IPL or the Big Bash, even though it's a different format. I like some of the rule changes. I like the time limit. 
I do like that it's a cricket match where you really know exactly how long it is going to take. I think that's great. Um, and yeah, I also think if I were trying to explain cricket to someone who'd never watched cricket before, this would be a little bit easier. But you're not going to, it's not going to be successful because it's more accessible. It's going to be successful because people who like cricket are going to, and the, I think the TV viewing figures have been really good so far. Obviously people are turning up, but people turn up for the, you know, the, the, the one day competition in county cricket for the most part anyway. So at the big venues. So I don't know. I'm a bit torn. And look, I also worry that too much of the English summer is then becomes dedicated to limited over cricket and that the, the, what we're going to pay the price for is England are going to go and play in the ashes and be all out for 92. And because all of these players spend most of their times playing matches where you've got to score quickly and the value of a wicket is not that important. And then suddenly you're playing in a test match and actually, do you know what? Just digging in and hanging around for half a day and only scoring 15 runs. Sometimes that's a success. Yeah, that that that's actually that's been England's problem for a while now is that they don't understand five day cricket anymore. Most of their test matches are done in three. Um, they don't have the kind of players anymore like the Michael Atherton's, Triscothics, that would happily score twenty runs off one hundred and ten balls. Like they only have people now that will go after it if they see an opportunity to hit a four, they'll hit a four. They won't just think, you know what, too risky, not doing it, not throwing away my wicket. And that's England's biggest problem with Test Match at the moment. Like, I I think we'll get spanked in the ashes, actually, as a slight preview <laughs> to whenever we talk about that. I think it's going to be right? a whitewash. Now, Joe yeah, Root getting spanked. Now, that's sexy. <laughs> if, if they go, because, of, you know, there's a possibility of England not going, or at least the, not the, the team we would, ex- the squad we would expect to go, not going. I, I read into it. I, I kind of see more of a reason why they're annoyed because obviously it, they would go to India first for the World Cup. So they would be away if they did the entire India World Cup. I think they're playing in the subcontinent as well, like maybe like warm ups against Sri Lanka or something. Then they go to the Ashes. I think they've worked out that a lot of the England players that play across all formats would be away for like four months. So before we finish up, I had a non-sports topic that bugged me a little, and I wanted to see your opinions on this. Last week, we listened to Eddie talk about his travel train woes and the types of annoying people that he sometimes or frequently encounters on the train. A new one that I've been encountering lately at the grocery store and the restaurant is the obnoxious phone talking person. So the first one I want to get your opinion on is in the grocery store, two separate people in one visit were pushing their cart and holding their phone in front of them on speaker talking to someone. And is that insane or like I don't understand I, how you can be so unaware of your I, surroundings that you think that's acceptable. I don't we've we've somehow normalized the speaker phone conversation. Like that's become an acceptable thing over the past couple of years. I think because of FaceTime 
and just that that has we've now accepted this idea that you're not just holding your phone to your your ear or using headphones it's now fine i don't get it i don't know why i don't know why i'd ever want anyone to be able to listen to any of my phone calls not that anything incredibly secretive or fascinating happens on them but i don't want the world to be walking by and judging the conversation i'm having i don't even like it when i'm just on a phone i don't walk around the supermarket on the phone full stop i think that's disrespectful i'm i'm a big i hate this is a pet peeve of mine that i know other people and sam and i have spoken about this before people feel guilt fall guilty of and i'm not judging it too harshly i hate when someone goes to pay for something and like doesn't take their headphones out really bothers me yeah but really bugs me Oh, I pull them out and every people, time. Like it's no, no, but it, yeah. it really, really bugs no, me. No, I, I understand. Like I do it, you know, because I feel that same way. Yeah, and the, like and the same. Some people keep a phone call going while they're paying for something. That's just crazy too. disrespectful. And I've seen it before where people are on speakerphone, but they have AirPods in, <laughs> but they're not listening to anything, but yet not connecting the AirPods. They're more of a fashion tool than they are actually for speaking a bit more privately than you would. No, all these people can be slap silly for all I care. That's, it's <laughs> I mean, ridiculous. I mean, I don't get it because, like, the, the part that just like I I can't wrap my head around is it's not as if they're doing something with two hands and the phone is placed like in the cart on speaker. They're literally holding the phone in front of their mouth. All they have to do is turn their wrist and click off speaker, and it's the exact same thing, except no one else has to hear you screaming into the phone and the other person responding. I consider myself a very friendly person in grocery stores. Like I've helped out people, you know, like when they're having trouble getting things or finding things. There was uh, the conversation was this woman trying to look for jackfruit. And in this store, and I've gotten jackfruit from this specific store, and I know it's very difficult to find, and I know exactly where it is. And I heard this woman be like, "Jackfruit? What's jackfruit? Ah, jackfruit says blah blah blah. It should be ah." And I looked, and for an instant, I was like, "Oh, I could easily help this girl out. I know where it is." And then listening to them scream to each other on speaker, I said, "You know what? No, I'm not going to do it." And just you should have just away. picked up the jackfruit and gone, "Here's your fucking Here. jackfruit," and just thrown it at her. <laughs> <laughs> It baffles me, and I'm not sure whether they're just so selfish that they only care about their own bubble, that they don't care about anyone else, or whether they're just so oblivious and carefree that they don't care about other people's bubbles. Like, I'm not sure which way it is. But Now, now, now that you've said that, I think a good retaliation would be for me to then make a phone call, throw it on speaker, and walk next to them the entire time they're trying to have their conversation on speaker and see if they say something to me that like, excuse me, sir, can you stop being on your speakerphone? But then everyone else in the grocery store has to suffer even more. Oh, and just these two it. twats just walking down. <laughs> As I'm following this person. Side side. Also, I don't know if there's ever been a complaint that's been, I hate labeling things this, but more of a first world problem. Than, than you complaining about how difficult it is to find jackfruit in your supermarket and the fact that people are then also on their speakerphones while you're while you're moving around.
Yeah, that is true. Well, I when I cook, I have a lot of vegetarians in my lab that I have to cook for, so I can't make pork carnitas. I have to make jackfruit. That is the first world yeah. problem. My to be fair, just I, I, just adding I, to it though, the people that do exactly the same thing with music when they're walking along the street and they have it on speaker, again, oh, that one really gets aggravating. Eddie, aggravates me that one get one gets eddie the most well, we discussed this like a <laughs> week know. ago I know. sometimes i feel like i have i go on a podcast with two people who just don't pay attention while we talk and sam you should be really worried because if frank is remembering that we discussed this and you aren't then <laughs> take yourself take yourself directly to a cat scan that, okay. now Done. i have one more this one i think could be a little more controversial so I like to go get breakfast by myself quite often. So like one or two times a week, I'll go to like a restaurant and just sit down by myself and eat breakfast. I happened to do it for the first time since, since the pandemic last week. And I was sitting in like a little communal spot. I was the only one there. But directly across from me was another woman, just a woman in like her own table. And the entire time she ate, she was talking on the phone. Now, is that annoying to be at a restaurant talking on your phone? Because at the same time, you could have another person there that you'd be talking to. But is it just the fact that you have pulled out your phone and are probably talking a little louder than you normally would if it were a real person? Does that make it annoying? I want Sam to go first. Yeah. Yeah, it's really annoying. Because Okay, you were kind of giving the look of... I don't know if this is annoying. And I no, it's ridiculous. This. Like if if you if if there's two people, if you if you're sat with someone having a conversation and maybe you're a little bit too loud, it's still fine. You're just a little bit annoying because you're a little bit too loud. But when you're sat there having a loud conversation, again, you're just being obnoxious. Like you you just you just think that this space is yours and you don't care about anyone's. I you, there's no consideration. Hey, I, I don't think you should be on the phone while you eat. So there's that element. But to me, it's not even a volume thing. The thing about someone being on the phone is you only hear one side of the conversation and it's just always more annoying. So even when someone is speaking in a normal volume right next to you and they could, and it's just annoying, even if you do think to yourself, if this was, if the other person, if you're sitting on a bus, for example, or on a train, it's instantly annoying, even though you could have the same level of conversation coming from those two people on a seat a couple feet from you, and it wouldn't annoy you. But just because it's the one way, so you don't hear, it's the, you can't kind of background noise it because it you, you don't get the conversation. You're just randomly getting these remarks. You're not getting the full story. Yeah, I just think, personally for me, I don't speak on the phone anywhere <laughs> well pretty much no but i only speak on the phone in my house or on the street and that's it or in my office but i go somewhere private in my office i will and that's it nowhere else who had episode 145 as the one where eddie tells us where he speaks on the phone <laughs> 
It's the information the world left. has been waiting for. This is... I've been waiting. I've always asked him, and he says, "You'll you'll find out. You'll find out. Just just give it a minute." And gave it 145 episodes. <laughs> well, now for future guests, this is a question we'll ask them. Where do you speak on the phone? Big Chill Podcast. We only the hard hitting questions. All right. Anything else? That wraps it up. Alright, well, I'll talk to you boys later after episode two of Ted Lasso. See you. Cheerio.